Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard, and today is Saturday, September 3rd, 2022. It's been 3,110 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 191 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission to report the truth, because the truth matters. Malcontent News has a strict errors and omissions policy because our team takes pride in being accurate versus being first. A sharp-eyed reader corrected our situation report from September 1st about the status of Novodimitrivka in Kherson. The Washington Post pictures showing an uncontested river crossing of the Inulets were taken near Shestimya. In satellite images, The location is 17 kilometers north of Kamyana. We've updated the map and have coded Novodimitrivka as contested, and we thank you for your understanding as we cut through the fog of war. If you feel we've made an error in our reporting, you can always let us know by emailing tips at malcontentment.com to reach the newsroom. Please put errors and omissions in the subject line so it's routed to our analysts. All right, let's get started with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, Russian disinformation about the counteroffensive in Kherson is coalescing around the same messages of suicidal attacks, massive Ukrainian casualties, and the failure of NATO training and weapons. Second, the Kremlin renewed threats of global war with the United States, the use of nuclear weapons if the nation feels threatened, and accused Moldova of discriminating against Russian speakers, indicating that, regardless of the disinformation, things are likely not going well for Russia in Kherson. Third, multiple reports from insurgents and Ukrainian partisans showed videos of dozens of Russian military vehicles leaving the Donbass towards Zaporizhia, indicating that Russia is doing everything it can to reinforce its positions along the western fronts. Fourth, The Russian military has made absolutely no progress toward achieving President Vladimir Putin's September 15th deadline to capture the remaining territory of the Donetsk Oblast. Fifth, Ukrainian forces hold fire control over vital supply lines for Russian forces and are choking off munitions, fuel, and equipment in Kherson, Zaporizhia, and Izium. Sixth, We maintain that the risk of Russian terror attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure to break morale is exceptionally high and will remain so for the foreseeable future. Seventh, the reintroduction of Chechen troops on the front lines in the Donbass indicates that Russian forces are critically low on troops. And finally, 
Not all victories on the battlefield are kinetic. Ukraine's continuous attacks on Russian ground lines of communication, or GLOCs, those are supply lines, indicate they plan to collapse Russian resistance by forcing them to consume their existing supplies. Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Kherson counteroffensive and Mykolaiv. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, continues its media blackout and press coverage restrictions until September 5th, and we expect the blackout will be extended. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky held another closed-door meeting of the Supreme Commander-in-Chief. The meeting included the highest-ranking commanders of the Ukrainian military, territorial guards, law enforcement, and intelligence services. In a television address, Zelensky said, quote, I think everyone understands the sorts of questions discussed, and certain decisions have also been made. I think everyone will be able to see their outcomes. End quote. Operational Command South, or OCS, reported Ukrainian forces supported 400 fire missions, that's artillery and rocket strikes, and performed 22 airstrikes on Russian positions. These are some of the largest numbers we've observed in Kherson through the entire war. West of Kherson in Biloserka, a video showed the horizon covered in spot fires after Ukrainian artillery targeted Russian positions and armored vehicles. Northwest of Kherson, pro-Russian social media accounts claimed that Russian forces recaptured Ternovipodi. The GSAFU reported in the evening that Zeleny High was shelled, making it unlikely that Ukrainian forces were pushed out of Ternovipodi or they were able to advance back into the settlement. The OCS report acknowledged that Zeleny High was attacked, but reported it was repulsed. Based on this information, we've moved the line of conflict and considered the village contested until we get better intelligence. Ukrainian forces continue to make the most progress on the Inulets River bridgehead. Ukrainian forces expanded their advance from Sukistavok to Bezimen. Pro-Russian account Rybar claimed that the Russian Air Force dropped 500-kilogram non-precision munitions by Su-34s on the village, destroying the Ukrainian presence and the town. NASA Fire Information for Resource Management Systems, or FIRMS, didn't show any thermal anomalies for Bezimen. However, it did indicate significant fires in the village of Bezvotne, 16 kilometers to the east. Some assessment here. We followed the consensus that Ukraine liberated Bezimen. The unverified report of an airstrike and the data showing fires in Bezvodna after Ukraine contested Bruskinsky has us wondering if the fog of war is creating confusion. Since April, the Russian Air Force has been reluctant to fly Su-34 aircraft on low-level bombing missions with non-precision weapons. That said, our understanding of the operational situation may change as we get more data. Pro-Russian accounts claimed that Russian forces had crossed the Seversky Donets and occupied at least part of Bilikrinitsia. However, the Russian Ministry of Defense claimed that a Ukrainian ammunition depot was destroyed in the same town, indicating the capture hadn't actually happened. Back to some assessment for a minute. Private military company Wagner Group's Telegram channel, Greyzone, wrote on August 28th that Russia's ability to identify and accurately target Ukrainian military assets was extremely poor, saying, quote, 
The target designation of the Ukrainian side is based on real important military infrastructure facilities, which, unfortunately, our side cannot achieve. If you, being a believer in reality, knew how many rocket and bomb strikes were inflicted on empty locations, you would become an atheist. End quote. Additionally, Ukraine decentralized its ammunition storage early in the war to prevent the catastrophic losses the Russian military repeatedly suffers. Simply put, just because Russia tends to stack its ammunition outside, in centralized locations, in giant piles with no consideration for attacks or fires, does not mean that the rest of the world does. Pro-Russian accounts also claimed that all three bridges crossing the Siversky Donetsk were destroyed, and Ukrainian forces are now trapped and being systematically destroyed by artillery. Pro-Russian accounts and analysts' fascination with, quote, in the boiler aside, the Siversky Donets is really low, and videos have shown Ukrainian armored vehicles simply driving through the river at the bridgehead. More assessment. Since the counteroffensive started, Rybar has made specific claims of failure and the end of the counteroffensive in the evening Pacific time, only to walk the claims back 12 hours later. Our favorite FSB colonel, war criminal, and Kremlin pariah Igor Gherkin-Strelkov reported the town of Arkhangelska had been liberated by Ukraine but was waiting for additional information. This runs counter to the narrative of the pro-Russian social media and most of the millblogger community. In the morning and evening reports, the GSAFU reported that Novopetrivka, east of Arkhangelska, was shelled by Russian forces. NASA firms did not suggest heavy fighting in Arkhangelska, but it implied there were artillery strikes northeast and southeast of Novopetrivka. There was consensus that the heaviest fighting continued in Olkhin, Viskopilia, and Potomkin. The GSAFU report stated, quote, The armed forces of Ukraine successfully repelled the enemy's attack near Viskopilia and Potomkin. End quote. In our assessment, we believe Russian forces maintain a toehold in the southern part of Viskopilia and a small patch of forested area to the southeast. They are likely attempting to push into Potomkin to move to a defensible location. We had previously assessed on July 29th that if Russian forces were forced to retreat from Viskopilia under fire and if Arkhangelsk was cut off, they would likely head 12 kilometers south to Kosirka. NASA firms suggests there is heavy fighting in Kosirka. We'll continue to monitor the situation. Videos showed Russian equipment and troops being attacked in southern Lyubomivka and Kreschenivka. In Kreschenivka, Russian airborne, or VDV, forces turned the town's school into a military base and parked their vehicles against the building. Russian equipment and troops, staged to cross the Dnipro River on a makeshift ferry in Olishki, were repeatedly attacked. Operational Command South reported that the ferry terminal pontoons were destroyed in a HIMARS attack. Large concentrations of Russian equipment and supplies are tightly clustered on both sides of the river, though there is a longer wait for vehicles attempting to cross from the north bank. OCS reported destroying a pontoon crossing near Kozatsk, which sits on the north bank of the Dnipro River. While we're on the subject of large piles of ammunition— a Russian ammo depot in Olishki was destroyed. In Vesele, Russian equipment and ammunition stored at a wine factory were destroyed in a HIMARS attack, sending plumes of smoke into the sky. 
OCS reported that a Russian ammunition depot in Kherson was also destroyed. Russia has started using helicopters to ferry supplies across the Dnipro and unloading at the airport in Chornobaivka. Since March, the Russian base north of Kherson has been attacked repeatedly by Ukrainian artillery, causing the loss of more than a dozen helicopters on the ground. Due to the security situation, only two helicopters are allowed on the ground at any time. The MI-8 helicopters have a cargo capacity of 3,625 kilograms, that's about 8,000 pounds, and while every pound of cargo transported helps, the effort won't match the capacity of the destroyed bridges and railroad connections. The British Ministry of Defense provided an evaluation of how the counteroffensive is progressing, saying, quote, The operation has limited immediate objectives, but Ukraine's forces have likely achieved a degree of tactical surprise, exploiting poor logistics, administration, and leadership in the Russian armed forces. With fighting also continuing in the Donbass and Kharkiv sectors, a key decision for Russian commanders in coming days will be where to commit any operational reserve force they can generate. End quote. The situation in Kherson is fluid, and better quality intelligence may alter our assessment in the coming hours and days. For now, though, our assessment is unchanged from September 2nd. You can find it in yesterday's episode around minute three. Let's move on to Dnipropetrovsk and northern Zaporizhia. International Atomic Energy Agency Director General Rafael Grossi said two inspectors would remain indefinitely at the Russian-occupied Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in Ukraine. Grossi told reporters, quote, We are not going anywhere. The IAEA is now there, it is at the plant, and it is not moving. It is going to stay there. End quote. During their inspection, IAEA officials were shown the remains of a booster section from a rocket. When asked why the rocket impact showed it was fired from Russian-occupied territory, the Rosatom representative tried to explain that Ukrainian grad rockets fly past the station, turn 180 degrees, and come in from the opposite direction. A quick editor's note, you really should watch the video. The representative from Rosatom looks 100% like a James Bond villain. Grossi has already returned to Vienna, where he reported inspectors were not surprised by anything, the core team saw what they needed to see, and the agency would release a preliminary report early next week. Grossi said, quote, My concern would be the physical integrity, the power supply, and, of course, the staff. We saw military actions around the NPP, and I was able to see with my own eyes, together with the team, the impact, signs or remnants of projectiles on the buildings, which means that the physical integrity of the plant was actually violated, and not once, but several times. End quote. Six inspectors are still at Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, and four will depart after additional inspections are complete. Grossi continued, quote, If something happens, or if any limitation comes, they are going to be reporting it. Report it to us. It is no longer a matter of A said this and B said the contrary. Now the IAEA is there. End quote. The GSAFU reported that they used precision munitions to target a company of Russian troops, equipment, and an ammunition depot in the region of Enerchodar. NASA firms indicated there was a significant fire burning in Kamyanka Niprovska. 
Ukraine targeted the warehouses in the same area on July 29th, causing a fuel fire. We can't confirm this is the same location of the Russian units that were attacked yesterday, but as they say, where there's smoke... Anyway, in another incredible development, Yevin Yevtushenko, the head of the Nikopol District Military Administration, reported that not a single rocket or artillery shell landed in the region, saying, quote, Over the past few days, the amount of occupiers' manpower and equipment have decreased on the opposite bank, end quote. Explosions rang out over Dnipro as Ukrainian air defenses intercepted all five missiles fired at the city. The mayor of Dnipro wrote on Facebook, quote, Girls and boys in the Air Force, you are like gods to us. I'm struggling to find any other words. End quote. Editor's note. Oh my god, what? I'm not crying, you're crying. Okay, focus. There were also reports of Russian missiles being shot down over Zaporizhia. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. Now to the Donbass region, starting with southern Zaporizhia. There wasn't any fighting in southern Zaporizhia we can report without breaking operational security though fighting in the direction of Polohi and Tokmak continued. A HIMARS attack destroyed an ammunition depot in the area of Russian-controlled Tokmak. NASA firms showed a large fire was burning in Balashivka, southeast of the city. Editor's note, cigarette smoking is hazardous to your health, especially when you do it around large quantities of poorly stored ammunition, which, I'm told, attracts the mythical creature Bavovnyatko. What is Bavovnyatko, you might ask? According to the Ministry of Defense of Ukraine's tweets, quote, It is fluffy and restless. At night, Bavovnyatko quietly sneaks into the occupier's bases, storage points, airfields, oil refineries, and other places filled with flammable goods, and begins to play with fire. End quote. An illustration by Svetlana Olevska has been circulating on social media depicting an otherwise adorable animal with flames coming off its white fur and massive deep blue eyes that can definitely see right through you. In southwest Donetsk, the Russian Ministry of Defense claimed for the eighth time since August 5th that the settlement of Pisky was captured. FSB Colonel Strelkov wrote a surprising piece on his telegram showing admiration for the Ukrainian defenders attached to a four-minute video of the fighting saying, quote, Another confirmation of the fact that, according to the great variety of so-called officers of the Russian armed forces, are simply a sobbing military court, end quote. In a rough translation, he wished Russian military officers were as dedicated and tough as the Ukrainian soldiers in Pisky. Strelkov also echoed that Pisky had been captured and that Ukraine had withdrawn from the bridge at the E-50 ring road. Fighting continued west of Donetsk, but Russian forces continued to be unable to make gains. The 1st Army Corps of the DNR attempted to advance on Optin, Avdivka, Nevelske, and Pervomaiske with predictable results. Russian forces also attempted to advance on Marinka and were also unsuccessful. 
A video in the Donetsk region showed a convoy of Russian military vehicles with the 3rd Army Corps, but we couldn't precisely geolocate the video by the time of recording. Along the Donetsk-Zaporizhia administrative border, Russian forces attempted to advance on Vremivka, but could not break through Ukrainian defenses. Insurgents in Mariupol blew up a car outside the home of a city police officer as a test of a new IED and to serve as a warning, according to the Mariupol resistance. The organization declared, quote, Payback is near. Look around. The resistance of Mariupol. You will burn like in hell. End quote. Insurgents recorded multiple Russian convoys of up to 80 pieces of military equipment passing through Mariupol and heading east toward Berdyansk. Some assessment? The Russian Ministry of Defense is not behaving like they believe the counteroffensive is over and has failed. It is unknown if the final destination of the personnel and equipment is Zaporizhia, or if they're heading to a risky attempt to cross the Dnipro into Kherson. Equipment moving through Mariupol is coming from Donetsk, indicating that troops meant to support an advance on Avdivka are getting drawn down, as we previously assessed might happen. Eighty pieces of equipment would support two to three fully staffed companies, depending on their configuration. In Bakhmut, PMC Wagner and the 2nd Army Corps of the LNR tried to advance on Solidar and Bakhmutska again, but remained unable to break through Ukrainian defenses. There wasn't any significant fighting for Bakhmut, indicating that PMC Wagner has exhausted its combat strength in this region. This is further supported by activity in the Svitlodarsk bulge. Further south, LNR separatists tried to advance further into Vesela Dolina and were unsuccessful. In the Svetlodarsk bulge, Ukraine launched a counteroffensive using fresh mechanized infantry after rotating troops out of the region. PMC Wagner was pushed back to the eastern part of Kodema and suffered heavy losses. Kadyrovites with the 141st Akma were rotated to the front lines and tried to advance on Zaitseve and Mayorsk. They were unsuccessful in moving the line of conflict, but we do expect amazing TikTok videos of fake fights, destroyed street signs, traffic lights, and broken windows soon. Some assessment here. The Kadyrovites are supposed to be a territorial guard in occupied regions, and have historically been called up to the front when staff levels are critical. Despite the numerous videos they made in Mariupol, geolocation showed they were as far away as 12 kilometers from the main fighting. Their fake fighting videos, stolen valor claims, and behaviors that included looting, torture, and rape of pro-Russian Ukrainians in the occupied territories enraged other Russian military units and Russian proxy forces. In June, after several high-profile incidents in Popasna, they were told to turn in their TikTok accounts and sent to the front in Severodonetsk and Lysychansk, where they committed numerous documented atrocities. Their presence in the Svetlodarsk bulge is a menace to friends and foes, civilians and soldiers alike. Moving Akhmat into the fight indicates Russia suffers from a critical troop shortage in the fight for Bakhmut. Grunts with guns take territory. Grunts with guns hold territory. Our assessment in Bakhmut is unchanged from August 25th. We recapped it on Thursday's episode around minute 11. Once again, there wasn't any significant ground fighting in northeast Donetsk and Luhansk, though the settlements around Siversk were shelled along with Raikhorodok. 
While Russian forces didn't target military targets, they launched missiles and rockets at Slovyansk and Kramatorsk. Pavlo Kirilenko, head of the Donetsk Oblast Military Administration, reported that multiple private businesses were destroyed in both cities. Only 10% of the population remains, having been evacuated in March and April when Ukraine believed Russia would make a direct attack from Izum. Due to those evacuations, there were no casualties in this attack. Our assessment here is the same as it was on August 18th, which we also recapped on Thursday's episode around minute 14. Moving on to the Kharkiv region, starting with the Izum Axis. Russian forces made no offensive attempts southwest, south or southeast of Izum. Artillery was fired at the usual villages and towns along the front. Northwest of Izum, the GSAFU reported an attempt to advance on Husarivka, despite confirmation that the bridge over the Siversky Donets at Bayrok was destroyed last week. Quick assessment. The GSAFU didn't elaborate on the size or composition of the force. We've coded Bayrak and Nova Husarivka as contested out of an abundance of caution and because we don't have any other information. The exiled Borova City Council reported that Russian positions within Izum were shelled by Ukrainian artillery. They reported that attacks had destroyed Russian troop concentrations, a command post, and fuel supplies. We can't confirm the veracity of their claim, but we have found the council to be extremely accurate in their reporting. We are still sticking with our assessment from August 8th. We last recapped it on Monday's episode around minute 15. There wasn't any significant ground fighting in northern Kharkiv either. Typical artillery exchanges occurred along the entire line of conflict northwest, north, and northeast of Kharkiv. Pro-Russian account Rybar reported that Ukrainian and Russian troops were fighting, quote, north of Yudi, and the GSAFU reported that Yudi was shelled again. Based on these reports, we have returned Yudi to Ukrainian control. In Kharkiv, the Lokomotiv sports complex was targeted by S-300 anti-aircraft missiles. Olympians from around the world have used the world-class arena and training complex. The swimming pool and boxing complex were just upgraded in February. Ole Sinyubov, Kharkiv Oblast administrative and military governor, declared, quote, We will rebuild everything, and the most talented athletes of the world will once again practice in our sports complexes, after the victory. End quote. Our assessment in Kharkiv is unchanged from August 12th. To recap, we previously assessed that Russian forces were testing the capabilities of the Ukrainian Territorial Guard taking over the defense of Izum, and we were correct. Positional fighting, reconnaissance, and probing for weaknesses will continue to occur. To the north in the Cherniev and Sumy region, Dmitry Zhivitsky, Sumy Oblast Administrative and Military Governor, reported a forest fire was caused by a Russian mortar shell launched at Krasnopilia on September 2nd. Due to the starting location and the prevailing winds, the fire moved across the international border and was burning deeper into Russia. For the first time in almost two months, Russia only fired a handful of mortar shells across the border. A squad of Ukrainian soldiers crossed the border into Russia near Repyachovka, 
and sabotaged military equipment on the forest edge. Honestly, we're more surprised at how porous the border is than the daring act recorded by a drone. Moving to the south to the Black Sea, Crimea, and Odessa region, a drift mine struck a seawall in Odessa, exploding near a private beach. There were no casualties. The Russian Air Force fired two missiles in the direction of Odessa, but both had a catastrophic failure mid-flight and exploded near the mouth of the Dnipro River. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. In what may be the biggest sign that the counteroffensive in Kherson is not going well for Russia, it has been zero days since Russia reminded the world they have nuclear weapons and will use them if faced with a, quote, existential threat. Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei Rybkov said, quote, We have repeatedly warned the U.S. about the consequences that may follow if the U.S. continues to flood Ukraine with weapons. It effectively puts itself in a state close to what can be described as a party to the conflict, end quote. He pointed out that Russia's military doctrine stipulates that it could use nuclear weapons in case of aggression against Russia and its allies. That could include weapons of mass destruction or aggressive acts threatening the Russian state's existence. Assessment here. Since the day of the invasion, the Kremlin has gone to the we have nuclear weapons and we'll use them if we have to every time something is not going the way the Russian Ministry of Defense wants it to go. Sending fighter planes to Ukraine was a red line. Russia didn't do anything. Sending tanks to Ukraine was a red line. Russia didn't do anything. Sending HIMARS to Ukraine was a red line. Russia didn't do anything. The Kremlin is starting to remind us of Yosemite Sam when he ran for political office. Yeah? Well, I speak loudly, and I carry a bigger stick, and I use it too. Okay, that's a terrible impression, but it doesn't matter. That's not why we're here. In another sign that things aren't going well for the Kremlin, they also dragged out renewed threats against Moldova. On September 1st, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said that Moscow could not rule out the use of force to protect its, quote, peacekeepers in Transnistria. He renewed claims that Russian-speaking people in Moldova face discrimination and repression. Moldovan President Maya Sandu dismissed the claims, and the Moldovan Foreign Ministry summoned the Russian ambassador to demand an explanation about the need to defend, quote, Russian speakers. The White House has asked Congress to pass another relief package valued at $13.7 billion for Ukraine. Interestingly, United States President Joe Biden has not used the power of the Lend-Lease Act to make a unilateral decision within the confines of the law. The new funding, if approved by Congress, would include money for military equipment, intelligence support, and budgetary support for Ukraine. It would also include $1.5 billion for uranium purchases to fuel United States nuclear reactors as a buffer to future potential supply issues. In a sign that the next funding package is already in play, United States Senators Ron Portman, a Republican from Ohio, and Amy Klobuchar, a Democrat from Minnesota, made a bipartisan trip to Kiev the same day news of the upcoming budget request leaked. Senators Portman and Klobuchar met with President Volodymyr Zelensky and Defense Minister Oleksiy Reznikov. They received a briefing on the war and Russia's activities, while the senators reaffirmed the United States' commitment to Ukraine, 
NATO, and the coalition supporting Ukraine. A video from Ukraine shows that the nation received a supply of 122-millimeter artillery shells that likely came from Iranian weapons shipments seized by the United States. The U.S. Navy intercepted an illegal arms shipment in 2017, although transit records show the munitions were packaged in 2022. The United States has been scouring the globe for Soviet-era artillery shells from as far away as Pakistan. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is no graphic detail in today's report, but if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. A Russian prisoner of war, likely with PMC Wagner Group, turns out to be a prison convict who is serving a nine-year sentence and was conscripted. Wagner has been actively recruiting Russian prisoners to fight as mercenaries with the promise of a clean criminal record if they can survive for six months in Ukraine. The early deployments in late July were a disaster, with the first 200 penal soldiers experiencing a 99% casualty rate, as we highlighted in an earlier report. Residents in Russian-occupied Melitopol that accepted Russian passports received notification that they must visit the Russian military recruitment office. Okay, hold up. Before smirking at the potential schadenfreude, Russian occupiers have worked to make life almost impossible without a Russian passport. The actions have forced some people to apply for one to get pensions, travel, work, and receive humanitarian aid distributed by Russia. Another video has been released showing the children of Mariupol being indoctrinated in what could be best described as hate camps. The teenagers, wearing a uniform of red shirts and red berets, are taught how to assemble, disassemble and fire AK-47s, combat medicine, basic military tactics, and agility. Part of the program teaches that Ukraine never existed and is evil that anyone who opposes Russia's expansion is a Nazi, and that Russia has no borders. In Mariupol, residents accuse Russian operators of Roset of requiring 1,500-ruble bribes to reconnect electricity to buildings and homes. Trash and sewer service has yet to be restored in most of the city, with piles of garbage building up. Although the water system is on in most parts of the city, the water mains remain hopelessly damaged, spewing untreated water down roads and alleys and out to the Azov Sea. We didn't really know where else to put this story, so in geopolitical news it goes. Simeon Piegov, the head of the unaffiliated news agency War Gonzo, was arrested in Moscow. Piegov was reportedly drunk when he attempted to check into a hotel. He became belligerent, assaulted an employee, and the police were called. He then decided it would be a good idea to assault a, quote, administrator, and he was arrested. Piegov became internationally famous for a slip-up on May 1st when he presented himself as in a combat zone. The cameras rolled as he coordinated with Russian soldiers to start firing when he thought the camera would start. The camera was recording the whole time. In economic news that should shock no one, Gazprom announced that they would not be restarting the Nord Stream 1 pipeline due to a gas turbine leak that needs a replacement from Canada. 
European customers condemned the announcement, stating that a single turbine failure would not cause a closure of the entire pipeline. Both Europe and the United States National Security Council have accused Russia of using gas as a, quote, weapon against consumers. European Council President Charles Michel vowed, quote, use of gas as a weapon will not change the resolve of the EU, end quote. Natural gas prices have increased as much as 400 percent in Europe over concerns of a tight winter supply, bringing concern of economic hardship. The ministers of the G7 nations agreed to form a buyer's cartel to cap the price of Russian oil sales. The ministers said, quote, Today we confirm our joint political intention to finalize and implement a comprehensive prohibition of services, which enable maritime transportation of Russian-origin crude oil and petroleum products globally. End quote. The price cap will be in the $40 to $60 range. Russia needs to sell oil at a minimum of $80 a barrel to fill the government coffers. Up to 60% of Russian tax revenue comes from fossil fuel sales and the oil and energy industry. The ruble was unchanged, with an official exchange rate of 60 rubles for one U.S. dollar. Oil prices continued to drop due to increasing global supply and concerns over China's renewed COVID restrictions. West Texas Intermediate fell to $87 a barrel, while Brent closed at $93 a barrel. United States RBOB wholesale gasoline climbed to $2.46 a gallon, or $0.64 cents a liter. Chicago SRW wheat futures ended the week at $0.80 cents a bushel for December 2022 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again on Monday for more updates. And don't forget to listen to David's Week in Review episode tomorrow. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.